Etna's Eruptions, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The eruption of 1819 was in some respects even more remarkable than that of 1811. The Val de Bove, which, as already mentioned, breaks in upon the dome of Etna upon the eastern side, was covered by a sea of burning lava. Three large caverns had opened not far from the fissures, out of which the lava had flowed in 1811, and from these flames, smoke, red-hot cinders, and sand were flung out with singular impetuosity. Presently another cavern opened lower down, but still no lava flowed from the mountain. At length a fifth opening formed, yet lower, and from this a torrent of lava poured out, which spread over the whole width of the Val de Bove, and flowed no less than four miles in the first two days. This torrent of lava was soon after enlarged by the accession of enormous streams of burning matter flowing from the three caverns which had formed in the first instance. The river of lava at length reached the head of the Colonna Valley, where there is a vast and almost vertical precipice, over which the lava streamed in a cataract of fire. But there was a peculiarity about the falling lava which gave to the scene a strange and awful character. As the burning cascade rushed down, it became hardened through the cooling effects due to its contact with the rocky face of the precipice. Thus the matter which had flowed over the head of the valley like a river of fire fell at the foot of the precipice in the form of solid masses of rock. The crash with which the falling crag struck the bottom of the valley is described as inconceivably awful. At first, indeed, the Catanians feared that a new eruption had burst out in that part of the mountain, since the air was filled with clouds of dust produced by the abrasion of the face of the precipice as the hardened masses swept over it. The length of time during which the lava of 1819 continued to flow down the slopes of the great valleys is well worth noticing. Mr. Scrope saw the current advancing at the rate of a yard per hour nine months after the occurrence of the eruption. The mode of its advance was remarkable. As the mass slowly pushed its way onward, the lower portions were arrested by the resistance of the ground, and thus the upper part would first protrude itself, and then, being unsupported, would fall over. The fallen mass would then in its turn be covered by a mass of more liquid lava, which poured over it from above and thus the current had all the appearance of a large heap of rough and large cinders rolling over and over upon itself by the effect of an extremely slow propulsion from behind. The contraction of the crust as it solidified and the friction of the scoriform cakes against one another produced a crackling sound. Within the crevices a dull red heat might be seen by night, and vapor issuing in considerable quantity was visible by day. The circumstance that Etna uprears its head high above the limit of perpetual snow has a remarkable bearing on the characteristics of this volcano. The peculiarity is touched on by Pindar in the words already quoted, in which he speaks of Etna as the nurse of everlasting frost concealing within deep caverns the fountains of unapproachable fire. It will be readily conceived that the action of molten lava upon the enormous masses of snow which lie upon the upper part of the mountain must be calculated to produce, under special circumstances, the most remarkable and, unfortunately, the most disastrous effects. It does not always happen that fire and ice are thus brought into dangerous contact, but records are not wanting of catastrophes produced in this way. In 1755, for example, a tremendous flood was occasioned 
by the flow of the two streams of lava from the highest crater. The whole mountain was at the time, March 2nd, covered with snow, and the torrent of lava formed by the union of the two streams was no less than three miles in width. The flow of such a mass of molten fire as this over the accumulated snows of the past winter led to most disastrous consequences. A frightful inundation resulted, says Sir Charles Lyell, which devastated the sides of the mountain for eight miles in length and afterwards covered the lower flanks of Etna, where they were less steep, together with the plains near the sea, with great deposits of sand, scoriae, and blocks of lava. In connection with this part of the subject may be mentioned the singular and apparently paradoxical circumstance that in 1828 a large mass of ice was found which had been preserved for many years from melting by the fact that a current of red-hot lava had flowed over it. We might doubt the occurrence of so strange an event were it not that the fact is vouched for by Sir Charles Lyell, who visited the spot where the ice had been discovered. He thus relates the circumstances of the discovery. The extraordinary heat experienced in the south of Europe during the summer and autumn in 1828 caused the supplies of snow and ice which had been preserved in the spring of that year for the use of Catania and the adjoining parts of Sicily and the island of Malta to fail entirely. Great distress was consequently felt for want of a commodity regarded in those countries as one of the necessaries of life rather than an article of luxury, and the abundance of which contributes in some of the larger cities to the salubrity of the water and the general health of the community. The magistrates of Catania applied to Signor Gamalaro in the hope that his local knowledge of Etna might enable him to point out some crevice or natural grotto on the mountain where drift snow was still preserved. Nor were they disappointed, for he had long suspected that a small mass of perennial ice at the foot of the highest cone was part of a large continuous glacier covered by a lava current. Having procured a large body of workmen, he quarried into this ice and proved the superposition of the lava for several hundred yards, so as completely to satisfy himself that nothing but the subsequent flowing of the lava over the ice could account for the position of the glacier. In other words, the ice had not accumulated in a cavern of moderate extent accidentally formed beneath overhanging lava masses. Unfortunately for the geologist, adds Lyell, the ice was so extremely hard and the excavation so expensive that there is no probability of the operations being renewed. This strange phenomenon is explained in all likelihood by the fact that the drift of snow over which the lava flowed had become covered with a layer of volcanic sand before the descent of the molten matter. The effect of sand in resisting the passage of heat is well known. Nasmith, the inventor of the steam hammer, illustrated this property in a remarkable manner, by pouring eight tons of molten iron into a cauldron one-fourth of an inch thick, lined with a layer of sand and clay, somewhat more than half an inch thick. When the fused metal had been twenty minutes in the cauldron, the outside was still so cool that the palm of the hand could be applied to it without inconvenience, and lava consolidates so quickly that there must soon have been formed over the snow a solid covering strong enough to resist the effects of the fresh molten matter which was continually streaming over it. In this way we may readily conceive, as Sir Charles Lyell has remarked, that a glacier 10,000 feet above the sea level would endure as long as the snows of Mont Blanc unless heated by volcanic heat from below. It is worthy of notice that in the Antarctic seas there is an island called Deception Island, 
which is almost entirely composed, according to the authority of Lieutenant Kendall, of alternate layers of ice and volcanic ashes. One of the most perplexing subjects to geologists is the existence of so remarkable a valley as the Val de Bove, breaking the contour of the dome of Etna nearly to the summit. It must be remembered that there are few subjects which have been more carefully examined than the question of the formation of valleys and ravines. The primary agent recognized by geologists is the action of subterranean forces in upheaving and depressing the land. In this way, doubtless, all the principal valleys have been formed. But fluidile influences have also to be considered, and a valley which exists upon the flank of a mountain may, in nearly every instance, be ascribed to the action of running water. In the case of the Val de Bove, however, we are forced to come to a different conclusion. If this valley had been formed by the action of running water in some long-past era of the mountain's history, the chasm would have deepened as it approached the base. On the contrary, the precipices which bound the Val de Bove are loftiest at the upper extremity, and gradually diminish in height as we approach the lower regions of the mountain. Nor can we imagine that the valley has been formed by a landslip. The dimensions of the depression are altogether too great for such an explanation to be available. And, passing over this circumstance, we are met by the consideration that, if the land which once filled this valley had slipped, in the ordinary sense of the term, we should see the traces of the movement, and be able to detect the existence of the removed mass. Not only is there no evidence of a motion of this sort, but the slightest examination of the valley at once disposes of the supposition that such a motion can at any time have taken place. It remains only that we suppose the valley to have been caused by the bodily subsidence of the whole mass which had formerly filled up what is now wanting to the dome-shaped figure of the mountain. And the subsidence must have taken place in a sudden manner, not necessarily in a single shock, but certainly not by a slow process of sinking. For the mass which has sunk is sharply separated from the rest, so that the precipitous walls of the valley exhibit the structure of the mountain's frame to a depth of from 3,000 to 4,000 feet below the summit of the cone. In other words, a portion of the crust has been separated from the rest and has then sunk bodily down, leaving the remainder unchanged. When we consider the dimensions of the valley, such an event becomes very startling. The Val de Bove, says Lyell, is a vast amphitheater, four or five miles in diameter, surrounded by nearly vertical precipices. One might almost be prepared to doubt that such a valley as this could be formed in the manner described, were it not that within recent times we have had evidence of the occurrence of similar events. During a violent earthquake and volcanic eruption which took place in Java in 1822, the face of the mountain Galongun was totally changed, its summits broken down, and one side, which had been covered with trees, became an enormous gulf in the form of a semicircle. This cavity was about midway between the summit and the plain, and surrounded by steep rocks. Yet more remarkable was the great subsidence which took place in the year 1772 on Papandayang, the largest volcano in the island of Java. On that occasion, an extent of ground 15 miles in length and 6 in breadth, covered by no less than 40 villages, was engulfed, and the cone of the mountain lost 4,000 feet of its height. There is nothing unreasonable, therefore, in supposing that some such event may have resulted in the formation of the strange valley which mars the dome-shaped figure of Mount Etna, although no such events have been witnessed in the neighborhood in recent times. 
One singular feature of the valley remains to be mentioned. The vertical face of the precipices which bound it are broken by what, at a distant view, appear to be dark buttresses, strangely diversified in figure and of tremendous altitude. On a closer inspection, however, these strange objects are seen to be composed of lava jutting out through the face of the cliffs. Being composed of harder materials than the cliffs, they waste away less rapidly, and thus it is that they are seen to stand out like buttresses. Now we would invite the close attention of the reader to this part of our subject, because, as it seems to us, it illustrates in a singularly interesting manner the mode in which volcanic cones are affected during eruption. We have seen that in the eruption of 1811 there was evidence of a perpendicular rent having taken place in the internal framework of Etna, and in 1669 a fissure was formed which extended right through the outer crust. In one case, lava was forced through the rent and burst out at the side of the mountain. In the other, the brilliant light which was emitted indicated the presence of molten lava deep down in the fissure. Now, when we combine these circumstances with the dike seen in the Val de Beauvais and with the similar appearances seen round the ancient crater of Vesuvius, we can come, as it appears to me, to but one conclusion. Before and during an eruption, the lava which is seeking for exit must be forced with such tremendous energy against the internal framework of the mountain's dome as to fracture and rend the crust, either in one or two enormous fissures or in a multitude of smaller ones. It does not follow that all or any of the fissures would be visible, because the outer surfaces of the crust may not be rent. Into the fissures thus formed the lava is forced by the pressure from below, and, there solidifying, the crust of the dome remains as strong after the liquid lava has sunk to its usual level as it was before the eruption. When we see dikes situated as in the Val de Beauvais, we learn that the fissures caused by the pressure of the lava extend far down the flanks of a volcanic mountain. That they are numerous is evidenced by the fact that those seen in the Val de Beauvais amount, according to Sir Charles Lyell, to thousands in number. And perhaps we may understand from such considerations as these the manner in which the Val de Beauvais itself was formed, for a wide strip of country between two great fissures might be so waved and shaken by the action of the sea of molten lava beneath as to be fractured crosswise, and then on the subsidence of the lava the whole mass below the fracture would sink down bodily. We gain an extended conception of the energy of the forces which are at work during volcanic eruptions when we see that they thus have power to rend the whole framework of a mountain. Among recent eruptions of Mount Etna, one of the most singular was that of the year 1852, which began so suddenly that a party of Englishmen who were ascending the mountain and had nearly reached the foot of the highest cone were only able to escape with great difficulty. The eruption, which had commenced so abruptly, did not cease with corresponding rapidity, but continued with but few slight intermissions for fully nine months. In the last week of May, 1879, a fissure opened on the north side of the mountain, and volumes of smoke and flame were seen to issue from it. From the crater itself a great cloud of black ashes was poured forth, rendering the mountain invisible, said one writer, and obscuring the rays of the sun, by which the writer presumably meant obstructing their passage, even at a distance of many miles. These ashes were carried far and wide, and even covered the ground as far away as Reggio, on the adjacent coast of Calabria. 
Three new craters opened in the direction of Randazzo on the north side of the mountain, and the lava ran rapidly towards the town of Francavilla, where great alarm was felt, though that town is situated beyond the river Alcantara and on the very outskirts of the region usually threatened by eruptions. On the opposite side of the mountain, Palermo and the adjacent villa of Santa Maria di Licodia were also greatly alarmed. The new craters and the fissure with which the eruption began lay all on the northern side of the mountain. The stream of lava, which was estimated to be 70 meters, about 75 yards, in width, flowed in a direction somewhere between Francavilla and Rendazzo, and reached the high road which encircles the mountain, and connects the latter town with the villages Linguaglosa and Piedmonte. These villages were enshrouded in a canopy of ashes, and almost total darkness prevailed in them. None of the ordinary concomitants of a great eruption were wanting. Balls of fire, or what were taken for such, were hurled into the air from the new craters and fissures, and, having reached a great height, they burst with a loud crash. Reports like the rolling of artillery were heard in the night, while night and day alike the stream of lava flowed stealthily and irresistibly on until it reached within a short distance of Linguaglosa. The terrible but magnificent eruption of the present year tends to confirm the belief of geologists that, if the Earth's internal fires are diminishing in intensity, the diminution takes place very slowly. A process of change may be going on which will result one day in the cessation of all subterranean movements, but the rate at which such a process is going on is so slow at present as to be imperceptible. We cannot point to a time within the historical era or even within that far wider range of duration which is covered by geological records at which the Earth's internal forces were decidedly superior in energy to those at present in action. Nor is this to be regarded as of evil import, but altogether the reverse. The work achieved by subterranean action, destructive though its immediate effects may often appear, is absolutely necessary to the welfare and happiness of the human race. It is to the reproductive energy of the Earth's internal forces that we are indebted for the existence of continents and islands on which warm-blooded animals can live. Had the primeval world been constructed as it now exists, says Sir John Herschel, time enough has elapsed and force enough directed to that end has been in activity to have long ago destroyed every vestige of land. So that, raising our thoughts from present interest to the future fortunes of the human race, we may agree with Sir Charles Lyell that the most promising evidence of the permanence of the present order of things consists in the fact that the energy of subterranean movements is always uniform when considered with reference to the whole of the Earth's globe. End of Etna's Eruptions, Part 2 Knowledge, September 1886